Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Sound. Speed. Real sound. Speeding. Real camera. Rolling. Action. My name is Micah. I'm eight. I found I like to read any book. Any book that's interesting to me. Um, books about pets. I think it's interesting to me that, um, about Joseph's dreams that he had. That's cool. I like that part. So what part of the story are you drawing right now? When Jacob, um, Joseph gets thrown into the well. His brothers threw him into the well because were, they were jealous. When they were jealous, they were just mad of him because they thought they would bow down to him and they didn't like that. They didn't want to bow down to him. So he's like, this guy's crazy and they threw him into the well. How deep do you think that well was? Really deep. How deep? How really deep? Like, at least five meters long. What does this dream mean? It means that in the future, weird things can happen, but that doesn't mean anything bad. So when he falls into the well, um, the next day his brothers see a caravan and they sell it to the traders as a, as a slave. Would you ever do that to your brother? No. Although he is very annoying. What's your brother's name? Malachi. Malachi did that to you. What would you do? I don't think he could because he's a baby, so. If he got, let's say, um, 10, 15 years later, and Malachi just goes to the gym all the time, and he just he just lifts weights, and he gets big like the Hulk. What if he did that to you? What would you do? I would tell my mom. Nothing like mom. <laughs> Our team has had a lot of fun interviewing these kids, sharing their favorite Bible characters, imperfect believers, and hope you've been blessed. I know I have. Um, in my work in media, story is foundational. They constantly, from the very beginning, tell you that Story, story is everything. No matter what you're making, whether it's an interview, a commercial, a document, it doesn't matter. Story is everything. In fact, it's kind of expanded so much, it's kind of in the general conversation now, all about story. Well, because it's so foundational, it's, it's almost a cliche, or yeah, 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 we, we, we got that. But just a, a week or two ago, I was introduced to a concept that it's, it's one of those concepts that when you hear it, it's kind of so obvious, you're, you're not, why you, not sure why you didn't see it before. And so um, this is one of those situations. And so uh, Professor Dr. David Thomas was talking about story, and he explained basically that 
Story is integral to our relationships. In other words, how we get to know each other is largely through stories. Now think about that for a moment. Do we connect with each other based on facts? Eh, maybe a little bit. But isn't it the stories we tell? That's how we get to know each other. And there's a quote that I'd like you to read with me that kind of highlights this. It's written by a, a Julie Beck, and she, it was an article in The Atlantic, and it reads, in the realm of narrative psychology, a person's life story is not a Wikipedia biography of the facts and events of a life, but rather the way a person integrates those facts and events eternally, picks them apart, and weaves them back together to make meaning. A life story doesn't just say what happened, it says why it was important, what it means for who the person is, for who they become, and for what happens next. It reminds me of a story I shared recently with the pastoral staff in a worship. And I always struggle to get through it because it's about my dad. Now, one thing you need to understand, and I think there's many in this room that understand what I'm going to say next. My dad grew up in a home where they definitely believed in not sparing the rod. Yeah, see, I can tell some <laughs> definitely recognize it. Now, fortunately, my dad maybe took a softer interpretation of that. Um, in fact, later, I remember my younger brother. I'm in the middle of three boys. I remember my mom saying, my younger brother, I, I, he was in elementary school. My dad gave him a spanking, came out in tears and said, Mom, I can't do this anymore. And he never spanked any of us ever again. And I, as far as I can tell, I think my brothers and I, especially my younger brother, younger brother came out okay. But the other thing is... Um, I didn't get very many spankings. Now you're thinking, oh, maybe he was a really good kid. That would not be the truth. <laughs> the truth of the matter is, I was such a sensitive kid, my parents would just look at me, and I'd break out in tears. <laughs> now this morning, I hadn't really thought about it. Maybe that was some kind of subconscious strategy of mine <laughs> to get out of spanking. I don't know. But but that's who I was as a person. Well, kind of connected with that personality was this, I was afraid of my dad. And so I remember this particular incident. My brother had gotten a new bike, my younger brother, and he just took to it right away. Training wheels were in his way. So he was great. He'd get on the bike and he'd just go truck it. There was just one problem. He had trouble stopping. So sure enough, he's riding away, he runs into a wall, and the thing breaks. He's fine, don't worry, he's fine, but the bike broke. So my dad and I, and I'm, I'm feeling good because I'm helping my dad, we go back to the house and we're trying to find a tool. And we're looking, we're looking, and we're looking, and everything's great because I'm feeling good. I'm helping my dad. Then I remember something. There was this tool that I kind of borrowed without permission that I broke, and I hid. 
And I get realizing, because at first I didn't realize what tool we were actually looking for. And guess what? It was that tool. So this kid is like, oh, no, I gotta tell my, how am I going to tell my dad all this kind of stuff? Well, I eventually find it, give it my dad, and of course my dad was not happy. So if you asked me to write my story of that whole experience, that would have been my story. And that would have been your perception of my interaction with my dad. Well, just a few years later, my dad was a school principal uh, most of my growing up years, and he was asked to preach. And lo and behold, he's telling a story. And guess what story he's telling? He's telling the same story. Only you know what? This was his take on it. He felt bad that his son was afraid to tell him. What do you think that story did for my relationship with my father? Did it change my relationship with my father? Absolutely. This was a whole new concept to me as a professor. Story is integral to our relationships. It's how we connect. And sometimes I'm concerned, I, and maybe you've done the same thing, when we come to the scriptures, we're more focused on the facts of it. We're talking about the ideas. I'm sometimes disappointed at some of the dismissiveness sometimes given to scholarship because I think it's given us such richer understanding of the scriptures. And I realize at times it might undermine, but I also realize I understand why sometimes because sometimes it feels like all we're talking about is the facts. We're talking about the idea of Jesus not the person, Jesus, the relationship with Jesus. So when we come to the Bible and we start, at least for me, when I start looking at it, these are stories, these are integral to our relationship with Jesus. It starts changing my perspective on how I'm reading the scriptures. And this morning I'd like to invite you to look at the story, to join me in, we're, we're in John chapter 11, this particular sermon series, we're going through the book of John, and as you know, it's entitled Imperfect Believers. And the imperfect believers we're going to be looking at this morning is Mary and Martha. But before we do that, I was recently talking to Pastor Randall, and he reminded me that John somewhat uniquely gives an explanation of why he told the stories he did. Now, if you do much read in the, reading in the scholarship, they talk about how John is kind of broken up into a couple of sections. One of those sections, they call it the signs, and we'll be talking about that a little bit, and then the glorification. We're going to be emphasizing on the signs. But John somewhat uniquely gives an explanation of why he wrote this. Read this with me. It's John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Who is that talking to? That by believing, you may have life in his name. Well, imagine with me for a moment, we're going to read some stories. This is John sharing his stories, the experiences he had with his community. Imagine this is a situation where he's in your living room and telling you this true story. Now, the situation in John 11, John 11 this is the experience of G- where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, it starts off very early on. It communicates that Jesus had a relationship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we further reading and find that he found this place as a respite. Jesus was constantly under ta- attack, or if he wasn't under attack, people just didn't get what he was saying. They just didn't believe. And if you imagine there's a lot of teachers in this room, when you're trying to teach a student and they're just not getting it, it can be a little exhausting. So that's the context. So we find out that Jesus really loved them. He loved hanging out in Lazarus' house because there they believed, they accepted him. He could talk more openly than he could amongst the multitudes. But there's a very interesting thing that happens. Lazarus is sick, and most of you are familiar with the story. Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha just simply say, the one you love is sick. We need your help, basically. So they send some messengers. And so very early on in the chapter, Jesus hears that he's sick. And it's very curious, his response. He basically says, this sickness will not end in death. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity in terms of how far away Jesus was, but it was made very clear in the text when he finally arrives, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. But the reason I bring that up is imagine this. So Mary and Martha have sent messengers, and let's imagine they come back and they say to Mary and Martha, this sickness is not going to end in death. And then they're sitting there, and their brother dies. That would be a little difficult to take, would it not? Why did this happen? It gets more interesting. In John 11, 5 through 7, It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Wait a minute. First says he loves them. Here's the bad news. And what does he do? Nothing. I imagine if I was one of the disciples there, it's like, this is a little curious. What's going on? And you've got to understand it's even more complex than that. By this time, it was somewhat well known that leadership was seeking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. We know this even in this text because later on when they finally decide to go to Judea, Thomas basically says, you know what, all right, let's go and let's die with him. That's the context. 
So this isn't just a relaxed situation. So, so Jesus doesn't do anything, and the disciples are kind of concerned, and then all of a sudden he says, well, let's go to Judea, and they're going like, what? Last time we were there, they wanted to stone you. Well, Jesus says something very interesting. He gets into this dialogue with the disciples. And remember, John has made it clear that he shared these stories so that we might believe, so the disciples might believe. And we look in John eleven fourteen through 15. Jesus has said, you know, he's sleeping, but then he clarified, no. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. Kind of strange. But so that you may believe, let's go to him. So Jesus is up to something here. And in this reference to scholarship of signs, they reference there are seven signs in John. The first is the turning of water to the wine. The last is this one. What's about to happen is he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So they make it to Bethany. Martha here, she comes out. What does she say? She says, you know, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then you kind of hear the conflict, at least when I read it, you can kind of hear the conflict where you can tell she's kind of, well, why didn't you do something? But then she kind of says, but you, whatever you say, you know, you'll still help us kind of thing. There's kind of this tone that, that she's kind of in this place, and I imagine some of you can relate to Martha. Why didn't Jesus do something? Have you ever been there? You're coming from a place of faith, but you're asking the question, why didn't Jesus do something? That's where Martha is. Another thing we learn about Martha is that she's a doer. In fact, it's one of the challenges. She's so much a doer that she often doesn't stop to spend her time with Jesus. In fact, you remember the story where Jesus is in the house and um, Martha says, hey, can you tell Mary to come over and help me? I'm, I'm in the kitchen all by myself. And Jesus kind of politely reminds her, you're anxious about things that are going to pass away. Your sister is anxious about those things that are eternal. But still, Martha comes to Jesus with a, an act of faith and gets into some interesting conversation. And this conversation is where Jesus says to her in John 11, 25, and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing will never die. Do you believe this? Whoever lives by believing will never die. Do you believe this? Martha was a doer. She was always worried about the details. There was nothing wrong with that. In fact, in Desire of Ages, page 525, 
It says this, there is a wide field for the Marthas with their zeal and active religious work, but let them first sit with Mary at the feet of Jesus. Let diligence, promptness, and energy be sanctified by the grace of Christ. Then the life will be an unconquerable power for good. Martha is someone that sometimes will run ahead of God. Then there's Mary. She comes out, and what does she say? If you'd hear, my brother wouldn't have died. Another statement of faith. But something unique with Mary, a whole group comes with, with her. And tradition is that they, in, in that culture, when someone died, they would hire a bunch of people to mourn. So this whole crowd comes. And there's a very interesting thing that happens. Jesus is moved and troubled, is what it says in the text. Now, what's kind of interesting about this, it's English, we can't always do this, but in the, in the original language, there's this kind of interesting concept that Jesus was essentially angry. Why is that? Well, Pastor Randy shared with us in a recent sermon series that he was angry. One of the reasons he was anger, angry was at the, this evil death that was creating so much suffering and pain. By the way, he's still angry. But he has this sense of anger. There was also an element underlying this that there were these people that are mourning, supposed to be there to comfort. But you realize there's more in this crowd than, than just that. Because later on, someone says, um, you know, if you could heal the dude that was blind, why couldn't you help your friend? What a thing to say, right? It's because there was a context there where there were people that believed and there were people that didn't. There were people there that later we learned went and told the leaders that Jesus was there, and the next thing we hear, they're determined to not only kill Jesus, but Lazarus. So here's Mary. She comes to Jesus. If you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus experienced a certain anger at the evil of death, the pain and suffering, but he's clearly got something in mind. He's already said, I'm here so that you might believe. You remember he said the statement, it was good that I wasn't there? And his next words, it says, let's go to the tomb. So in the midst of this very deliberate action by Jesus, When you're a little kid, do you ever have them ask, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? This is where it's at. Probably the most profound words, Jesus wept. He was in the midst of trying to share truth, but he still was a human. He saw the pain in Mary and Martha. And remember, he knew he was going to be raising Lazarus but he could still feel your pain. It's one of the things that struck me is that Jesus, remember, was human. Another thing in the discussion about Mary, there's a lot of debate on this. I choose to go the direction where very early on in this chapter, John chooses to say, by the way, this is the Mary that anointed Jesus. 
And then, then, if you remember, slightly after this chapter, there's Simon the leper, Mary comes in and anoints Jesus head to toe and wipes his feet with his, her hair. And if you remember in the story, Simon's thinking, you know, if Jesus really knew how bad this person was, he wouldn't even let her touch her. So there's clear indication, and then in Desire of Ages, they make a connection that this is the Mary that Jesus cast out, the demon several times, and so on and so forth. So this was a person that did not believe she was worthy, that felt she was tempted to believe she had sinned too much, that she was unsavable. So we had Mary, who was the doer, or Martha, that was the doer, and Mary, who was unworthy. These are the sisters in front of Jesus. And Jesus wept. What's the next thing that happened? Where is he? Jesus is going to directly confront death. So he gets to the tomb, so everyone's following. And now remember, this is a story. This is a true story. This is a story to teach us about Jesus. So imagine now that you're there. One of the wonderful things about film, it allows us to experience things in ways that we can't any other way. Well, here's a story. Imagine that you're one of the persons in this crowd. And Jesus says, roll away the stone. What does Martha do? Wait, 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 wait. He's been in the tomb four days. This is going to be a bad thing. Jesus wanted to take her to another level. Remember he asked, do you believe? So all these people around, Jesus obviously could have just, uh, you know, moved the stone and done all this stuff, but he asked them to move it. And what did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. Now, was there anything at that moment Satan could do? Not a thing. This sign was the sign of all signs to prove that he and his father were working together in a way that we can't even imagine. Read with me John 11, 40 through 42. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they believe that you sent me. Jesus said that so we might believe that Jesus was sent by God. God the Father and the Son the Holy Spirit were working together to reach them and us. Period. One of the things that really speaks to me in this story, it reminds me Jesus is human. He feels it. In fact, one of the things that's interesting in Desire of Ages, it talks about the fact 
that Mary anointed Jesus, which, by the way, she's the only one that heard Jesus say he was going to die. And in that situation with Simon, Jesus referenced it. She anointed me for my burial. She's the only one of all of them that seemed to hear it. And it described, it encouraged him while he was going through the suffering of the crucifixion. Jesus feels our pain. And he went to great lengths over and over. He suffered greatly so that we might believe. What have we done to deserve a love like that? And, and you say, well, Jesus, you know, just kind of skimmed through. Well, we all know right after this whole situation, the lines were drawn. This is when they were definitely, we're going to find whatever way we're going to kill Jesus. There was no, it was either I'm for him or I'm against him. It was very clear. Jesus knew this. He knew that his followers needed to know this to make it through. Think of the suffering the disciples had to go through if they had just believed. I don't know about you, but many times I feel like I'm the disciple. I believe in Jesus, I think. I can't look at them and say, why don't you believe Jesus? Why didn't you know he said he was going to die and raise again? But Jesus is so patient with us. And one of the things he was trying to communicate is not only that was resurrection at the end of life. This is in his dialogue with Martha, they talked about that. He wants the resurrection today. There are things in our lives that need resurrection. Our relationship with him, no matter where your story is, Jesus always wants to take us to a greater relationship. Our life story is intertwined with his life story. What have we done to deserve a love like that? 